Good morning. Uh, I spent several years watching Mike in a pulpit that was just a little too low for him. And, he, and now I'm in his. And it feels high. It has been a joy to come and visit with many of you, to, to meet many of you out at camp, uh, to get to know this body in Lacrete. Um, and I bring greetings from Grace Life, from the eldership there and from the people there, some of whom you know and have met, that we continue to love you and pray for you and care for you. So it's been wonderful for my wife and I and our, some of our family to come and, and just experience uh, deep frying. Uh, that is a, a joy that I hope to come for again. Uh, thank you for the kindness that you've shown us, for feeding us, and just the kindness to our children and to my wife. It has been a blessing. Well, as we come to the preaching of God's Word, I'm going to take you to a passage that was significant uh, for myself a few years ago as we underwent some trial and tribulation, and our obedience was put to the test. And so I take you to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to go through the whole chapter. So I better get started. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And I'm reading NASB, so my apologies. I know that uh, more of you are reading out of ESV. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, 
Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What an amazing portion of scripture. And I pray that our look at this chapter this morning will be encouraging to each of you in consideration of your biblical faithfulness and obedience to an almighty God. I've titled this morning's message, The Sound of Bleating. And right out of the gate, we are forced to address a very somber and shocking opening to this chapter. It's possible that during our initial reading of the chapter, you were kind of mentally distracted, stuck at the opening lines. And I want to read them again as we look at the first point this morning, which is the command. The command. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Here's the command. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. We're swimming in the deep end here. There's no introductory lap. It is possible that your notion of God has just been assaulted. Many have found this text difficult to to understand, to rationalize with respect to the extreme nature of God's command. Go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Let's be honest. We don't really have compassion for camels or donkeys, even men. But when we read women and children, infants, there's a sobriety that we have to wrestle with. And it's imperative that you have a biblical and theological worldview in place in order to begin to make sense of this instruction. What are some of the specific attributes of God that must be kept in mind? What do you need to keep in place as you read this? One, that God is just. God is perfectly just. Second, that God is omniscient, that he is all-knowing. There's no knowledge that he does not have that would change his decision. God is immutable, that is, he does not change. He also does not have swings of passion. God is good, 
he is good. And that he has all of these things perfectly at all times, simultaneously. Indeed, he is completely other. That is why the angels praise him as holy, holy, holy. So essential to your ability to reconcile this instruction with your own conscience is first to establish who is the giver of this instruction. Specifically, he is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. This is an all-powerful creator with command over spiritual heavenly hosts. It has a military connotation. And this God is the very one who has chosen Saul to be king over his people and has given him an instruction that could have been immediately and flawlessly carried out by his hosts. He could have given this charge to the angel of the Lord, but he didn't. He had given the command to Saul. You see, the authority of the one who gives an instruction is most important with respect to how and why their instruction, instruction is to be obeyed. The level of their authority will dictate the urgency and the execution of that instruction. So as tempting as it might be to go back and immediately look at what this offense was to Israel, I won't do that just yet. I, there's an important lesson for us here. We're quick to want to run the Lord's command through our own mental process in order to see if we agree, if we're in full support, if we can get behind what he is asking, and if we consider it necessary or beneficial. But the determination of obedience, like I said, lies in the source of the authority that has made the decree, given the instruction doesn't matter how palatable the request is, how appealing it is to man. It's of little consequence in light of the one who has made this request. It ought to be enough to know that since God has commanded it, we can trust that it is right and good and that God has justly judged his people. He has the authority and right to execute judgment on them for he is holy and all-knowing he is good and deserves to be glorified by the justice that he has instructed to be carried out. God has made Saul king and has now given him a command. The power that Saul wields has been given to him to be used in God's service. Are you settled in your heart that God is good and just as you read these verses? The summary of what had occurred to prompt this command can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you came out of Egypt, how he confronted you on the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. So it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, that you shall wipe out the mention of the name Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. You must not forget. This command is a well-known and long-anticipated act of judgment against a people who did not fear God. In his commentary on 1 Samuel, author Dale Ralph Davis said, the sign on Yahweh's kingdom reads, beware of flock. Rulers and nations who read it should shudder, especially if they have touched and butchered the sheep of his hand. So this seemingly harsh and difficult passage of God's word is vitally important to teach us and remind us of the certainty of God's judgment for sin and also of his protective care for his chosen people. Back to 1 Samuel 15, verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. While there's no record of Saul's immediate response to Samuel's instruction, the initial details of his actions look promising. He even displays compassion on the Kenites. 
and allows them to depart prior to his complete defeat of the Amalekites. So in the first point, we have seen God's command to go utterly destroy Amalek. But as we arrive at verse 8, we arrive at the second of our four main points, the compromise. Beginning now in verse 8, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Verse 3, do not spare. Verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag. Consider the language used here. The best of, all that was good, they were not willing, everything despised and worthless. These are the judgments of man and not of God. What happened here? I suspect that when Saul and the people reached the point where obedience to the Lord's command was painful, they compromised in order to proceed in a fashion that was more pleasant, more beneficial, more rewarding, less uncomfortable, and less difficult. Beyond sparing Agag, Saul and the people were not moved with compassion to spare anyone else. We don't read that they spared the wise or the weak or the fairest of the Amalekites. No, they utterly destroyed them. Why? Because they remembered the wrong that had been done to them and were likely quite zealous to settle the score. So at this point, we're aware of the actions of Saul and the people, that they don't match the instructions given by the Lord, but we might even be tempted to side with Saul to justify the slight alterations that he made as more fitting to what we imagine of God's character. But God's command was an execution of his judgment on a rebellious people. It was not a case of ethnic cleansing, but of ethical consequence. However, in their selfishness, Saul and the people pursued their own personal desires and ignored the specific instructions of the Lord. Verse 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Saul has turned back from following me. How does God feel about the slight adjustments that Saul has made? How does God feel about the minor tweaks that were performed in the plan? He has turned back from following me. God is not pleased with Saul's disobedience. I want you to see something here that is significant. There's a word that was just used which may raise a question in your minds. How are we to understand the word used of the Lord here, I regret, or even the sense of I repent? How is that possible? A simple study would describe this language as anthropomorphic, that is, to give human traits or characteristics for the purpose of human understanding. However, it's also important to recognize that our efforts to understand God, we do not make him into our likeness, that we are created in his image, we're not to create him in ours. While man must repent or suffer regret due to our failures and lack of wisdom and knowledge, God does not. His regret or repentance speaks to a change that is in perfect agreement with his purpose and eternal intent. Repentance is not a change of mind, but a change of method, says Matthew Henry. He does not alter his will, but he wills an alteration. It was God that brought the change that brought Saul into power. Now he will remove him from power. Back to verse 11. Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. Try to put yourself in Samuel's sandals here. The Lord has sent you to anoint Saul as king over Israel, who then is quickly disobedient, and you are sent to confront him. 
you're grieved, you're emotional, you go and find him and find he has set up a monument to himself, which under the circumstances must strike you as vain and boastful. And when you finally find him, he greets you with such a slap in the face as this, I have carried out the command of the Lord. Verse 11, he has not carried out. This is a case of utter and blatant denial on the part of Saul. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? If you obeyed the word of the Lord and utterly destroyed everything that he commanded, why do I hear sheep bleeding? Why do I hear oxen? Essentially, how do you explain these obvious signs of your disobedience? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the purpose, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. They, they brought them. Welcome back to the garden. When Adam declared it was the woman you gave me. Saul immediately shifts the blame to the people and tries to qualify it with a claim that the animals were spared for sacrifice. Isn't it convenient to phrase your rebellious disobedience in the language of devotion? The animals were selected, carefully deemed most fit to be slaughtered as part of a feast. This has nothing to do with a heart of obedience and everything to do with a stomach for pleasure. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak. At this point, Samuel has had enough. He, he would have been indignant with Saul's response, with his excuses. It's tantamount to just, just don't speak. Just stop talking. Let me tell you what the Lord said. And I can only imagine the smile falling from Saul's face as he probably swallowed and waited for what Samuel had to say. Because it seems that Saul expected to have a chance to make his case, to explain himself, specifically to excuse himself. Saul had not considered an all-knowing God that is aware even of his thoughts and motivations, let alone his actions. Verse 17, Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites? Verse 19, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Samuel is specific to walk Saul through all of the important facts, all of the evidence. He is reminding Saul of his humble beginnings, that he was little in his own eyes, that he was nervous and aware of his insufficiency. God chose you. God made you king. God gave you a mission. God said, utterly destroy why then did you not obey? It has been said, as any of us might do, Saul kept the best of the bad, convinced that God would be pleased. We are all capable of this same foolishness. Then Saul says to Samuel, verse 20, I did not obey the voice of the Lord. Oh, sorry, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen. Stubbornly, Saul repeats himself here, citing that he both spared Agag and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. He seems to view Agag as a trophy and not as a member of said Amalekite people. Secondly, he persists in blaming the people for taking some of the spoil and traveling across the land for some distance without the consent, knowledge, or permission of their king? I don't think so. Mercifully, Samuel goes straight to the heart of the matter and dispenses with the nitpicking of the details with Saul. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord 
as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. What are burnt offerings and sacrifices that he's alluding to here? They were those prescribed by God in the law as an atonement for sin or as an act of worship. So by implication here, Samuel is asking, what is more pleasing to the Lord out of two things that the Lord has commanded? Obedience or sacrifice? It was by his command and instruction that sacrifices were offered to begin with. However, however we see here that obedience is more pleasing. To obey is better. Why is that? Because ritual observances do not trump heartfelt submission. This is not a criticism of the sacrificial system, but of the abuse of the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was never intended to function in place of living an obedient life, but was rather an expression of it. You see, God is interested in the heart of a man, and not as Lloyd-Jones puts it, what's in his pockets. Strict observance of the forms of religion, that is legalism, without a desire to be faithful to its purpose, fails to achieve the level of worship, but simply aims at selfish gain. Let's look at the two words here used by Samuel. Obey, that is shama, that is to listen, hear, and obey. The second is heed, that is kashab, to incline your ear. So taken together, these terms speak of an intentional effort to receive an instruction with the intent of completing it, to incline the ear to hear and to incline the heart to obey. Therefore, obedience may be seen as the sacrifice of the will. It is the submission, the coming under of your will to the decree or desire of another. Yes, the sacrificial system was instituted by the Lord as a picture to Israel of what was required as an atonement for their sin. But obedience doesn't require that the sacrifice be made. God is more glorified as self is more denied. Thomas Constable puts it this way, sacrifice is one aspect of obedience, but obedience involves more than just sacrifice. We should never think that we can compensate for our lack of obedience to some of God's commands by making other sacrifices for him. So let's look quickly at what is revealed by Saul's disobedience. And there are three subpoints here, three things that are revealed by Saul's disobedience. The first, disobedience shows a misplaced fear. Who did Saul confess that he had feared? The people. Because he feared the people instead of God. He feared the human consequences of obedience more than he feared the divine consequences of sin. He feared the displeasure of the people more than the displeasure of God. Disobedience shows a misplaced fear. Secondly, disobedience shows a misplaced pleasure. A misplaced pleasure. Their pleasure was misplaced. It should have been in God but they delighted more in the meat of sheep and oxen than they did in the pleasure and fellowship of God. Shows a misplaced pleasure. Third, disobedience shows a misplaced praise. Evidently, Saul was more interested in getting a name for himself than in making a name for God through careful obedience to his word. He had misplaced praise from God to himself, but Saul was not content with the glory of God and the honor of being his chosen king. He wanted his own glory and his own praise. And the submissive path of obedience does not offer that kind of praise or glory. Disobedience shows a misplaced praise. So we have seen first the command, second the compromise. We arrive now at the consequence. The consequence. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Saul had rebelled against the Lord's command, and Samuel was right to draw this parallel. For rebellion is no little sin. It is on par, if not even a close kin, to divination or witchcraft, the practice of serving a demonic false god. Setting up other gods is, in its very doing, disobedient rebellion 
against the true God. Saul is no doubt convinced that his sins are small. The consequence for divination and idolatry was death. His rebellion and insubordination to the clear and simple instruction of God was equally worthy of judgment because there is no small sin. Samuel's confrontation of Saul can be broken into two specific insights for us to consider. First, the subtlety of sin. The subtlety of sin. Sin can be elusive and covert and difficult to identify. Saul did not even appear aware that he had failed to follow the Lord's instructions. So minor were the two changes in his eyes. Spared Agag, spared livestock. He viewed those as as minor. This shows us that sin is subtle. It can be difficult to see. Secondly, the self-deceptive nature of sin. It deceives you. Even if it is there and you are aware that sin is there, sin is deceitful and quickly considered needful or just. Just like a monument. He built himself a monument commemorating an unfaithful completion of God's instructions. It's almost laughable if we weren't capable of equal foolishness. But for the grace of God, sin will blind you. It happens so easily that you won't call it disobedience, but instead you might think of it as a slight compromise, which as you continue to rationalize, it becomes a necessary change, which might eventually be considered even useful or necessary for some goal that you desire. Sin is both subtle and self-deceptive. Verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so ends the brief and sad reign of Israel's first king. Note here also that God had already told Samuel that Saul had turned back. Samuel's efforts here have not been to evaluate Saul's motives and report back to God. God isn't trying to figure out what happened here. Maybe Samuel, you could sort this out with him. I suspect the reason Samuel was distressed and cried to the Lord all night was that he understood that God had already spoken. And Samuel said, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Enter great worldly sorrow. The kingdom is removed. You will not be king. I do not imagine a broken and contrite heart bursting forth in Saul. He finally confesses that he has sinned, but even more stunning is his appeal to Samuel that he had transgressed the prophet's words, seeking pardon from him and not from the Lord, but from Samuel. Further pleading with him to return with him, essentially to spare his pride. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for if you you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Here we have a prophetic revelation that the Lord has chosen a new king. We know, of course, that this is David of whom it is spoken that he is a man after God's own heart. The striking truth here in this text is that it reveals Saul was a man after Saul's heart. What a heartbreaking scene this must have been as the desperate and dejected king grasps the robe of Samuel, tearing it, only deepening the rebuke and further highlighting Saul's complete absence of the fear of God. He had ignored and disobeyed Now he has laid his hand on the faithful messenger of the Lord, even as he selfishly sought to avoid any uncomfortable personal consequences. Does he have no shame? We we almost just want to say like enough, but it's not enough. Verse 29, 
Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The meaning of what Samuel says here is simple. God has decided. In his perfect wisdom and knowledge, he will not change, nor is he capable of deceit or doubt. Do not beg, do not plead, do not cry. He has decided. However, you will no doubt recall moments ago when we read verse 11, which said, God regretted. Yet here we read something seemingly in contradiction. Dale Ralph Davis is helpful. He says, the paradox tends to split our minds. But a little thought tells us that this God who both repents and does not repent is the only God we can serve. Only in the consistent God of verse 29 and in the sorrowful God of verse 11 do we find a God worthy of praise. Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. And so Saul says, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. We're back to the pleading, maybe even groveling, as Saul is now in full panic. What will the people think? Did you catch the subtle but telling change in wording that I may worship the Lord your God? He no longer even claims that it is his God. He's essentially saying, please allow me to continue the charade, to play the part. Saul is only concerned with the externals of sacrifice, which imply his spirit is unaffected by a need or desire to obey the Lord. He's content with a formal religious offering. Alexander McLaren observes, such a man habitually acts in disregard of God's will, and that is great sin, though it be manifested in small acts. The mingling of personal advantage with any sort of service of God ruins the whole, and it turns it into mere selfishness. Self-seeking and obedience cannot coexist. Saul is seeking undue honor without giving due honor to the Lord. Verse 31, so Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Why Samuel agreed, I can't definitively tell you, but it was no doubt with some divine purpose. Notably, it does not say that Samuel participated with Saul in his superficial worship. It may have been to preserve peace in the kingdom. However, what follows gives us a clearer idea of what was the priority of the prophet. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. You see, Samuel loved and feared God. He could not stand to leave the Lord's command unfinished. Despite his confession of sin, Saul apparently gives no thought to dealing with the outstanding reminders of his disobedience to the command of the Lord. Saul cannot bother to do that which has been commanded and then reiterated to him as incomplete. Samuel, on the other hand, cannot bear to leave undone that which God had commanded be done. Then Samuel went to Ramah. But Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Here again, we must deal with God's regret. Though I remind you that this is not the regret of a man who feels remorse for an act and can now see a better way that he wishes he had tried instead. This is the sense of compassion much as a doctor would inform a patient that he regrets to inform them that they have cancer. This is again the compassion of God over his divine instruction to make Saul king, knowing and intending that it would not be the solution to Israel's trials, but still intending it for their good and for his glory. So this brings me to our final point today. We've seen the command, the compromise, the consequence, and now let's look at the caution. The caution. So I believe it's necessary to understand the big picture so that we can consider the the caution that applies to us, just as it did apply to Saul, and he ignored. 
but that we would pay attention today. Look again at verse 14. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel was not concerned with the sound, but with the significance of the sound. The sound of bleeding is the telltale sign of Saul's disobedience. Here's the principle. Disobedience to God's will always has consequences in our lives. The bleeding is the immediate surface expression of a more significant, deeper issue. McLaren has said, the tiny shoot of a plant peeping above the ground does not argue that the roots are short. They may run for yards, nor can any act be called small of which the motive is disregard of God's plain command. He that is unjust in the least is also unjust in much. There is no little disobedience. There is no slight deviation that does not have implications in your life. Whether it be visible and audible to those around you as here with Saul, or whether it be silent and corrupting in your heart, there is still a sound of bleeding which sounds in the ears of our Lord. I would ask you then, brother and sister, is there a sound of bleeding in your life? Are there subtle signs that reveal an insincerity of faith? What struggles and trials have revealed ways in which you struggle to walk in faithful obedience to the Lord? Have you struggled with Christ's command to pick up your cross and follow me when that puts you at increasing odds with those around you? Let me remind you that the crowds around Christ shouted, crucify him. How precious is Christ to you? Do you believe that it is absolutely necessary to be made into his likeness? Is there some step of obedience that you have failed to take? Is there some action or priority or attitude that you will not give up? Even though your conscience is warning you and despite the Holy Spirit's convicting you of sin, Rest assured that this disobedience is bearing fruit in your life. In some way, some fashion, perhaps the sound of bleeding in your life can be seen in a worldly lifestyle or a contentious and critical attitude. Perhaps it is uncertainty, anger, or anxiety. What does your disobedience display? Is it a misplaced fear, a misplaced pleasure, or a misplaced praise? Are you aware of the subtlety and the self-deceptive nature of sin that you may be blind to something or that you may be aware, but due to the passage of time or your own reasoning, you now believe you are doing either a good thing or that your variations from biblical instruction are not actually significant? Speaking of Saul in this context, one commentator asked, Or did he, like a great many other men who have no deep sense of the sanctity of every jot and tittle of a divine law, every bit of a divine law, please himself with the notion that it was enough to keep it approximately in the spirit of the precept without slavish obedience to the letter? The letter of the law matters to the extent of the authority of the lawgiver. God, the supremely powerful lawgiver, deserves meticulous obedience to every letter of his law. The Scottish minister William Still has observed, if your emphasis is not on the Lord's authority in this world, where else reliably are you to put it? The emphasis, as far as God is concerned, does not lie with man's reason, but with revelation. What God says, not what man thinks. He concluded thus, Saul is useless. You don't doctor the Lord's instructions. The Bible is very precise, especially where the Lord is testing a man's fitness for service. Thus ends the kingship of the man of incomplete dedication to the Lord. It is the tale of many, even in our own day. Now, though that was written not in our day, it is still true in our day. We can say the same Now, can't we? Whether we 
twist God's commands into legalism or we pick and choose from them to allow for our lawlessness. We have done as Saul and aimed to establish, maintain, and secure some earthly kingdom. Matthew Henry summarized it this way, thus carnal, deceitful hearts think to excuse themselves from God's commandments with their own equivalents. And here's the heart of Saul's disobedience as well as that of our modern day. There are no equivalents. God's instruction is not a recommendation, nor is it a suggestion. Our surrender to and submission to Christ is to be total and complete. His rule and reign in our hearts is to be total and complete. That means unshared. There are no equivalents. What did the bleeding of the sheep reveal about Saul? That he cared more for the praise of the people than he did about obedience to God's instructions. Saul sought honor in the eyes of the people and not a life honoring to God. That he cared more for his desire than God's desires. So how are you tempted to seek honor before the people? As Saul did. Man-pleasing and man-fearing often make an ugly couple. They go together, fearing man and aiming to please man. J.C. Ryle is insightful. He says, the fear of man will indeed prove to be a snare. It is terrible to observe the power which it has over most minds, and especially over the minds of the young. Few seem to have any opinions of their own or to think for themselves. Like dead fish, they go with the stream and tide. What others think is right, they think is right. What others call wrong, they call wrong too. There are not many original thinkers in the world. Most men are like sheep, they follow a leader. If it was the fashion of the day to be Roman Catholics, they would be Roman Catholics. If it was to be Islamic, they would be Islamic. They dread the idea of going against the current of the times. In a word, the opinion of the day becomes their religion, their creed, their Bible, and their God. Beware the opinion of the day, the current of the times. Beware tradition. Beware heritage. Beware the culture of your community. Beware the expectations of others. Beware borrowed convictions. Beware anything that would raise itself up as a God and demand your submission ahead of Jesus Christ. Samuel was consumed by a heart that trusted in the Lord, was devoted to the Lord, and aimed to be wholeheartedly obedient to his commands. May we be men and women of whom a similar thing could be said. Will you commit with me and with each other to prayerfully come before the Lord daily, seeking to bring thought, word, and deed into obedience with his word and the likeness of his son, to humble yourselves to the loving care and correction of the body of Christ, and to guard yourself against the subtlety and self-deceit of sin, which we have seen here in Saul and know to be true in ourselves as well. Let me encourage you in your pursuit of obedience. Our Christian obedience is the fruit of Christ's work in us, not the seed of Christ's acceptance. Let me say that again. Our Christian obedience is the fruit of Christ's work in us, not the seed of Christ's acceptance. Our obedience is the result and display of a heart that hopes in God and aims to honor him. Our obedience is not what earned us favor in Christ's eyes. And our obedience is not the result of our own righteousness that God is rewarding. Legalism is merely an attempt to sacrifice enough to please God. Obedience is better than sacrifice as it can only come through faith in Christ and from a heart that desires to be pleasing to his Lord. Romans 1 verse 5 says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles in behalf of his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful reality. The obedience of faith is brought about by the grace we have received through Christ. Obedience is better than sacrifice, though sacrifice is also necessary. 
In the person of Jesus Christ, we see both sacrificial obedience and the perfectly obedient sacrifice. God in his mercy sent his son, who though God became a man and was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect sinless life all for the purpose of giving his life as an obedient sacrifice. He took on himself the just consequence and judgment of our sins and died in our place on the cross. On the third day, he rose again, having conquered death, and he ascended into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and we joyfully await the day when he will come again, trusting in him by faith to enjoy eternal life in his presence. We deserve the same fate as the Amalekites. The judgment of God for our rebellion and idolatry for we also had not feared him. Our works are an insufficient sacrifice. Our hearts offer an imperfect obedience. If you are yet in unbelief and rebellion, I would urge you to repent, to cry out to him by faith. Do not continue in the disobedience of a darkened heart. Your conscience is bleeding in your ears as a warning. Only faith in Christ and the indwelling of his Holy Spirit makes it possible for you to receive a new heart, one which will long to obey him out of a hope that he places within you. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your people. I pray that you would strengthen them, equip them, embolden them in their walk in their search, in seeking to obey you. Thank you for Christ who teaches us and demonstrates obedience perfectly, who was our perfect sacrifice. Help us to trust in him. Help us to live lives that would be pleasing to you. Give us wisdom and, and insight as we look at our own hearts that we might seek out any disobedience repent, and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.